This Israel report is brought to you by the Blue Agency. Your Israel property is in good hands. Owning properties in Israel can be a great investment, but challenging to manage if you are based abroad. The Blue Agency will manage every aspect of your property, finding and vetting tenants, maintaining your property and getting it rental ready, negotiating contracts and collecting rentals, reporting back to you regularly. The Blue Agency has built a reputation for trust and confidentiality over 20 years. The Blue Agency, your Israel property is in good hands. Contact us at www.thebueagency.com. The Israel Report for the latest news and insights with Anthony Reich. Anthony Reich, a very, very good morning to you. How are you? Boketov, I don't know. It feels like there's like external intervention going on in the world right now. And I'm not only talking about the internet going down yesterday, Howard, mm-hmm. but also this, you know, earthquake in Morocco. And then we've seen the massive floods in Libya. More than 5,000 people are reported to be dead or missing in Libya. And they say that they don't even know how many because so many people have been washed out to sea with the floods. And then this morning in Israel, the heavens opened. And it has been pouring with what? rain in the middle of September and before wow. Rosh Hashanah. It's like wow. unheard of, really wow. unheard of. But probably, massive, massive rain but probably quite morning. nice. Clears the air, settles the dust. It must be quite, uh, quite lovely. It is a little refreshing. It does clear the air a little bit, but it's very humid, hugely humid, and the roads are flooded, and everybody's been caught off guard because Israel has a very definite wet season, which is mm. in the winter, and people are not ready. You know, all your storage is still outside, and restaurants and, and, and coffee shops will have all their furniture out in the street, not quite ready. Um, usually there is a process when we get towards winter where things get closed up and roofs get put on, and even if they're temporary uh, for the winter period and we haven't nearly reached that moment yet so um, everybody's been caught very much off guard today um, with the massive rain but also um, there is a lot of preparation going on at the airport um, apparently they're expecting something like 5 million passengers to pass through their Gurion airport between now and the end of Sukkot, which is apparently when people like to go away. Obviously, um, a lot of people get time of work over the Chagim, school holidays, and so a lot of people use the opportunity to go away. Um, the most popular destinations, the U.S. is always going to be a popular destination, the U.K. as well. But most of the popular destinations that people are traveling to from Israel now are actually quite close by. Italy, Cyprus, Turkey, Greece, those seem to be the most popular destinations. 50 chartered flights being uh, taking people to Uman. They won't be landing in Ukraine. They'll be landing in areas around Poland, mm. uh, Belarus, other areas, in order to get people to Uman. 50, 50 chartered flights going to Uman. Um, but the most controversial part of what's going on at the airport right now is that um, a smoking zone has been reintroduced at Ben Gurion Airport. There is a place inside where people can go and smoke a, a designated area. And this has caused a great deal of controversy. The um, Health Ministry of Health has written to the airport authority very, very angrily, very displeased with reinstating the smoking zone. Um, and it was uh, Dr. Sharon Alroy-Price, who's the, um, the Director General of the Ministry of Health, 
who wrote a letter to the CEO of the airport's authority saying that the return of smoking areas to the airport will have a significant impact on the national efforts of government ministries and other partners to reduce Israel Israeli smoking rates. Mm. Um, and I just wonder what listeners think about that. We want to hear from people who are smokers as well. What do you think about the reintroduction of the smoking zone? Apparently, it's the first one. There will be two or three others that will be set up in the airport. The, the CEO of the airport has said that this comes in direct response to requests by passengers that people very, actually very ask for a smoking zone to right. be set up in the airport. I'm guessing, obviously, people who are regular smokers. What do you guys think? Uh, three four five one nine or oh six one eight nine five one oh one nine. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Fascinating that that is happening. Right, there were tense exchanges yesterday in the High Court of Justice as the 15 judges on the bench of the court fired questions as the legal representatives on all sides of the petition. Was anything new learned from this? Well, I think there were quite a number of things that we learned. First of all, for me, it was a little bit of an education because I didn't expect it to be in this format. It was almost like questions and answers going down. All the judges were firing questions at people at the, the myriad of legal representation that was there. And I don't know that that's standard practice in a courtroom for the judge to be doing the questioning or the judges in this case, because there are 15 of them and they've all got questions mm, and they've all got mm. different uh, angles that they're coming at things from. But the other thing that was interesting for me is that the government was represented amongst by amongst other people the um, minister the, the member of Knesset who is the head of the committee for constitution law and justice so uh, this was Simcha Rotman who has been very instrumental in pushing through the judicial reform he himself turned up in the court in order to represent the government he also had um, a legal colleague alongside him. I'm guessing that Rotman is probably a lawyer himself. I'm not sure about that. But also alongside him was Ilan Bombach, who is an attorney representing the government, representing the prime minister, and also representing the minister of justice. So those were the two <clears throat> main protagonists who turned up at the court to represent the government view. And there were some very, very interesting questions and answers being fired back at the judges. There was kind of almost a, a lowering of the respect levels because usually when you turn up in a court, mm. and especially when you've got 15 judges of the High Court of Justice uh, uh, sitting in front of you, there is a certain level of respect, even in Israel, that's offered towards judges on the bench of a court. And here yesterday, I just feel that that distance was removed a little bit and there were some real blows being landed. The gloves came off and there were some real blows well, being landed. Well, isn't that because in this case the judges are actually part of the concern? They're party to the case in some exactly. ways. It's almost as though this whole case should be heard by external judges and not the very judges who have something to gain or lose by the outcome here. So that's a very interesting thing because what the government team was arguing, both Rotman and Bombach argued, is that um, the basic law is the one that actually enables the right of the High Court of Justice to do its job. Mm. And now 
the High Court of Justice is as actually sitting on a matter that affects its ability, its right to do its job. And what they're saying is that the ultimate decision-making body in our country and in any democratic country is the electorate, the people who choose the members of the Knesset. And that is a direct election, and therefore the Knesset should have the ultimate decision-making authority on any matter, including the uh, basic laws which give the High Court of Justice its authority. So they are arguing exactly what you just said, is that the judges are really kind of a party to this Mm, case mm. because they're um, having to uh, pass judgment on a matter which affects the very law that gives them the right to make judgments. Um, And so it is a, a slightly convoluted case. Here is what I would say, and I've said it a few times and I'll say it again, about the notion of democracy and the idea that the Knesset is the ultimate elected body, which I think it really is. I do agree with that. The problem that we have is that when we look at the Knesset and when we say, well, the majority of the people have elected people to the Knesset and this is what the majority has decided, then that's when I would say no to that because mm-hmm. it's not really a majority decision. Unfortunately, we don't really have the ability to make majority decisions in this country given the split of all the different minorities that make up the Knesset. So while the Knesset really is the ultimate decision-making body, I think what's missing from our Knesset is a supermajority kind of provision where we're saying not that it's just 50 plus one who will be able to decide on behalf of everybody, but perhaps in these more important decisions, we need to have a two-thirds or even a three-quarters majority. So... These were the things, there was a lot of procedural discussion about whether the court really even has the authority to make decisions on this particular matter. One of the little jibes that uh, Simcha Rotman uh, gave to the judges was he said that he, he, he accused the judges on the bench of being privileged elites and that he accused them of being concerned with preserving their own status. That was actually mentioned at the judges yesterday, that accusation by Simcha Rotman. And um, to that, the uh, president of the High Court of Justice, Esther Hayut, came back saying they were not concerned at all about their own status, but only interested in the public good. Um, so that was really um, the, the uh, atmosphere that we found in the Court of Justice yesterday. Um, lots and lots of questions being asked about particular aspects of the basic law and how the Knesset comes to the decision. And, and one of the things that was raised, which was quite interesting, is that this particular amendment to the basic law, which removed the reasonableness ability, uh, the reasonable, what we call the reasonableness law, that particular law they claim, the judges claim, was enacted by the Knesset in an entirely different way from the other 26 basic laws that have been enacted up till now. And they feel that there is some procedural, some lacking of procedure in enacting the basic law, it was a little bit too quick. There wasn't the ability to give everybody opportunity to participate. The whole procedure that was used, and that certainly is one of the challenges that's been put in front of the court, saying that procedurally this wasn't done correctly. This is, of course, going to go on for some time. We've already mentioned, I've already mentioned that. We're expecting this to go on for another three months. But certainly yesterday, as the first day, was extremely interesting um, and if this is what's going to be happening, um, I can see that there's going to be um, a lot of uh, blood on the walls in the High Court mm. of Justice mm. as these jibes are really um, 
fed backwards and forwards uh, between the bench and the various legal representatives that were there. Yeah, very, very. Uh, uh, it's just fascinating to see how this uh, it, it, how this plays out. The British Foreign Secretary is currently visiting Israel. What's the purpose of this visit? Well, it's interesting that um, the British Foreign Secretary James Cleverly. Um, has actually never visited Israel. This is his first visit to Israel, and of course, while he's here, visiting the Palestinian Authority as well, which is the usual practice, at least, of the uh, British diplomatic corps. When they come to Israel, they make sure that they play things very much uh, down the line and very fairly between Israel and the Palestinian Authority. Uh, this was the first time that James Cleverly had been to Israel. He went to Yad Vashem. He laid a wreath in the Hall of Mem- Remembrance, which is a usual practice, particularly for people who come to Israel for the very first time. He also had the opportunity to meet with Prime Minister Netanyahu, uh, as well as uh, the Israeli uh, Foreign Minister Eli Cohen. And um, interestingly, the UK and Israel do not currently have a free trade agreement in place. And I think that much of the discussion yesterday was around the possibility of implementing a free trade agreement between the two countries. Britain is Israel's largest trading partner in Europe. And it seems strange that there is no uh, free trade agreement that is in place at the moment. Some of that, I think, is political because we do mm, know that mm. the British um, Foreign Commonwealth Office has been very much friendly towards the Arab world over the years. But with the Abraham Accords, that is now becoming kind of grey area. And whether this might potentially have an impact on the uh, policies that have been followed by the, uh, the FCO, the, the Foreign Commonwealth Office, the UK Foreign Commonwealth Office, and whether this might change their view towards Israel is remains to be seen, but is certainly an interesting prospect. So um, the, uh, the, the Foreign Secretary, of course, reiterated, as you would expect, that it is British uh, policy to pursue the two-state solution and encouraging all parties involved uh, to try to uh, come to terms with uh, finding a way to, to, to move forward in that basis. But most of the discussion seems to have been really around bilateral trade and bilateral cooperation across many regions, including security and technology, various economic fields. Um, so, and of course, discussion about Iran and what's happening with Iran. Those seems to have, those seem to have been the main items on the agenda. Finally, uh, the uh, COVID cases are on the rise in Israel again. And uh, this is obviously, there's, there's been an announcement about masks. Is this likely to be taken seriously? A bit of deja vu, right? Yeah, um, COVID yeah. Back I don't know if I'm ready to cope with this. Yeah, so, so people, I think, are feeling very, very differently now than was the case a number of years ago when all of a sudden we were getting these instructions. Currently, instructions for people who have COVID is that if you are showing symptoms, you should self-isolate. That is a recommendation. Mm-hmm. It is not an instruction. In other words, people are not obliged. There is no, none of this um, uh, tracking people to make sure that they're self-isolating and, and that they're not infecting other people. But there are some quite severe strains of corona going around at the moment. Some people that I know who've been really, really ill for quite some time having contracted um, one of the latest strains. So it can be quite debilitating, even for young and or youngish and healthy people. Um, it can be quite serious. And so there is some speculation that we might be asked to wear masks over Rosh Hashanah. There's already been a recommendation 
for people who might be in higher risk groups or who might be visiting crowded places or who might themselves be or might be visiting other people in high risk groups, there is a recommendation to wear masks. It's not an instruction. And actually, to be fair, I don't see that many people walking around at the moment mm-hmm. wearing masks, yeah, certainly imagine. nothing near what we saw previously. But it's certainly going to be a thing over the Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur holiday period about what people should be doing. Um, the, the latest vaccines are not yet available. Apparently, both Pfizer and Moderna are producing updated vaccines are not yet available. People are getting flu injections in the meantime ahead of the winter. But um, the latest uh, um, corona, the COVID vaccines uh, are due out only in a few weeks' time. So we definitely have an issue here that people are not quite sure how to confront with the upcoming holiday season. Mm, mm. And I think that uh, obviously it does. Uh, it's, it's not that simple. I mean, uh, well, maybe it is on some level. Just be responsible. But uh, but we are nervous about it. We do have a little bit of PTSD. From COVID, which is not unreasonable. Anthony Rock, thank you as always. Tomorrow, um, I'm not sure if those figures will be available, but I always look forward to chatting to you ahead of Rosh Hashanah uh, with the with some of the information that becomes available in terms of the stats in Israel. It, it is a day earlier than we normally would do this. I hope it uh, it will be available to us uh, to you to talk about. Uh, if not, we'll cover normal news. But either way, we will chat to you tomorrow morning at 7.45. That Israel Report was brought to you by the Blue Agency. Your Israel property is in good hands. Owning properties in Israel can be a great investment, but challenging to manage if you're based abroad. The Blue Agency will manage every aspect of your property, finding and vetting tenants, maintaining your property and getting it rental ready, negotiating contracts and collecting rentals, reporting back to you regularly. The Blue Agency has built a reputation for trust and confidentiality over 20 years. The Blue Agency, your Israel property is in good hands. Contact us at www.thebluagency.com.